So continuing with the Dhamma talk that uh, Lumpur Chao was giving to the retreatants at IMS in the spring of 1979. Uh, this is the uh, uh, advice he's giving on a meditation practice. So he was talking about uh, yesterday uh, uh, the qualities of refined uh, concentration, samadhi, and uh, up to the point where the breath becomes very quiet or, or uh, seemingly disappearing altogether. At this point you might begin to doubt, because it's here that the visionary meditation experiences, called nimitta, can occur. These can be of many kinds, including forms and sounds. It's here that all sorts of unexpected things can happen in the course of the practice. If nimitta do arise, some people have them, some people don't, understand them for what they are, meaning impermanent phenomena. Don't allow yourself to become alarmed. At this stage, you should make the mind unshakable in its concentration and be especially mindful. Some people become startled when they notice that the breath has disappeared. When it appears the breath has gone, you might panic or become afraid that you're going to die. So you need to understand it's just the nature of the practice to progress in this way. Observe this feeling that there's no breath and sustain it as the object of awareness as you continue to meditate. The Buddha described this as the firmest, most unshakable form of samadhi. There is just one firm and unwavering object of mind. When your practice of samadhi reaches this point, you'll be aware of many unusual and subtle changes and transformations taking place within the mind. The body will feel extremely light, or might even disappear altogether. You might feel like you're floating in midair and seem to be completely weightless. It might be uh, like you're in the middle of space, and wherever you direct your sense faculties, they don't seem to register anything at all. Well, this is talking about uh, uh, refined states of uh, concentration, and uh, the uh, whole system very, uh, very focused, very composed, very, very settled. So uh, one of the characteristics of uh, Lumpur Chao's teaching was uh, uh, generally downplaying uh, strong meditation experiences, like and particularly as he mentions here, nimitta. These can be colors or visual forms or, or uh, sounds that are heard, voices coming to tell you things. Um, it can be smells or physical sensations. Um, it can take shape in all sorts of ways. And almost invariably, Lumpur Chao would just say, can you let go of it, or don't make anything out of it, or this is, yeah. <laughs> or he'd, uh, someone would say, oh, Lumpur, I have this blazing, uh, blazing light. My mind is filled with, with just this extraordinary radiance. He'd pick up his, his torch and say, <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got a lot of brightness here too, and just to flick his torch on and off. It's, like, it's, just, it's just light, it's no big thing. Don't, don't, get, up, don't get excited about it. And so that... Um, um, other meditation teachers um, uh, and uh, various or spiritual experts of various kinds can uh, make a lot of different visionary experiences or uh, things that are seen or, or heard or, or um, uh, uh, say the images that appear. But uh, pretty much invariably, as far as I'm aware, Lumpuchard just would say, you know, don't make anything out of it. Because I think he could see for himself and he knew from his own experience how 
when he'd had those kind of experiences, uh, he could get carried away or read a lot into it. And, and then the way the mind picked it up and held it was uh, far more sort of confusing and problematic than anything that might have been valuable through the, the imagery that was appearing or the, 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 the form or the sound. Yeah, sometimes these kind of things can be like a, a significant dream that there's a message that they're, they're bringing. So it's not as though they are you know, always to be totally dismissed, but uh, that was generally uh, Lumpur Cha's um, approach to that. So and I feel that's extremely good advice because uh, it might be that something does carry a particular uh, meaning or a message, um, uh, but it's, uh, it, uh, it hinges around what the mind is doing with that. So, for example, uh, for a long time, Lumpur Chah kept getting this nimitta of crossing a bridge and then the bridge coming to an end. He sort of get to the, sort of the midpoint of the bridge and there's no, uh, there's no way forward. And he felt there was, that was a clear message. You, you're, you're, you're getting a certain, uh, to a certain level in your practice, but you're, uh, there's no way forward the, the way that uh, things are taking shape. And so he went and asked various ajans. I keep seeing this image of crossing a bridge and then the bridge just falls away and, and there's no uh, and there's no further progress possible. You know, what do you think this means? So that, uh, uh, as with many of these, these teachings, there's a, a sort of a general approach, but it's not uh, a, a kind of, you know, in, in all situations, at all times, uh, uh, then you ignore everything. Because, you know, that uh, sometimes there can be a useful message or a, a, something that is sort of symbolic or significant. But it always hinges around what's the mind doing with this? How much are you uh, reading into it? And uh, the uh, uh, and like that, picking up the the torch, you know, flashlight, and say, "Look, <laughs> it's very bright." <laughs> so that's the the general kind of approach of you know, don't uh, don't inflate or don't make too much of these things. It you know it arises, it passes away. It is another impermanent uh, experience, even if there might seem to be some kind of value in it. Also, with respect to um, the breath getting very, very quiet and uh, or getting very, very slow uh, and spacious, that, that kind of things. Um, one, um, uh, uh, the uh, other approach that can be made with in, in respect to that is to use a different meditation object. So um, they say, listening to the inner sound, the nada, uh, the nada sound can be something that is a, a very helpful alternative. That if you uh, are interested to have a particular object, but the breath is extremely quiet or is extremely slow or, or undiscernible, then often you'll find that the inner sound uh, or the inner vibration is extremely distinct. And sometimes the more concentrated, for many people, the more focused, the more concentrated the mind is, and the clearer and the, the louder, the more distinct that inner sound, the inner vibration is. So, And that doesn't have a, a beginning or an end. It's, it tends to sustain itself very, very evenly. And so that uh, can be used as a, a meditation object, even if the breath has got uh, become extremely subtle. And uh, there's a quality of of receptivity and uh, an energization that comes also from um, developing that nada yoga, not the inner listening. Also, um, with. Uh, uh, it's notable when Lumpur Cha talks about these uh, particular kind of experiences or states of concentration. He doesn't talk about your know, first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, or rupa jhana, your know, formless jhana, or or a jhana based on form. 
that uh, he tended to avoid those kind of numerical distinctions or stages. Uh, he very rarely talked about stream entry or being a once-returner or a non-returner, arahant. That, uh, again, he could see that by having those sort of particular stages, not that there aren't, um, say, degrees of development or, or sort of qualities of progress that, that are, are real, but he could see what the mind makes of those things. You know, what stage am I at? What what uh, what level of concentration is this? You know, is this second jhana or third jhana or no jhana or <laughs> where am I? And that uh, the mind getting caught in trying to put a number or a name or a, a quality on it. And uh, so he tended to to um, not dismiss that altogether, but just not uh, not make much of it. And Lumpo Sumedho a very very similar style um, because of um, the. Uh, the tendency of the mind to, to look to, uh, 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 to what stage we uh, there might be uh, have been realized and the whole habits of uh, bhavatanha the desire to become the, that sense of defined being uh, catching the mind and um, wanting to be say uh, known to yourself or to others so you've reached this level or that level or that's uh, then the the mind grasping that and saying this is what I am this is what I have realized this is what I have attained and then that um, that kind of a, a attachment even though it might again have a degree of accuracy <laughs> to it the way the mind is taking hold of it can cause you know, more uh, obstruction and difficulty and, and not not in this particular talk but um, uh, Lumpur Chah does address that in other places where he says you know you don't need to talk about you know first stage or second stage or third stage and so on but just you can you can think of it in just in terms of uh, increasing degrees of, of peacefulness, so that he he played down that that kind of ranking and that sort of uh, the levels of, of realization or what stage one might have reached, and I think also in particular through the in the sixties, late fifties, early sixties, mid sixties, um, the uh, influence of the Mahasi uh, technique was quite strong in Thailand and people. Uh, the, the um, Mahasi Sayadaw's method of the sort of 16 stages of, of insight being talked about quite a lot and the different stages having particular qualities associated with them and and uh, a, a number of, uh, of monasteries in Thailand they, they use that method very uh, uh, very specifically and so then there, there were people coming to, or people who were living at Wat Bapong or practicing these kind of methods and saying, yeah, which stage am I at? Or, <laughs> uh, I, I think I've reached you know, the, the fifth level of insight, but, uh, it's, but there's, there's things I'm experiencing that are like the eighth level of insight, so yeah, where am I? And again, he could see that, again, not that it's completely irrelevant or not accurate or not, or not uh, meaningful, but... Um, uh, I, again, my, my grasp of the Thai language is very, very limited. But um, uh, even when I was there as a, as a novice and a, a young monk, then when this question would come up, then uh, Lumpur would say that you, know, you can talk about the sixteen stages of insight, but but people vary. And if someone says uh, you know, they describe some kind of particular experience, and they and they uh, and, and it's indicative of say the twelfth level of insight. But then, something. Uh, then they say, but, but I've only reached the third level, so this can't be. This can't. This can't be a sign of the twelfth level. And he would say, well, sometimes you, you know, maybe the way that things develop is one, two, three, twelve. Then yes, <laughs> six, seven, four. You know, it's like you can't. 
you can't uh, generalize. People, people vary so much. And that if you try to put everybody into the same kind of box or have a so one-size-fits-all, it's just not the way that human beings are. We, we, are, we have different characters, different people develop in different ways. And if what they're experiencing is stage 9 or stage 12, then you can't, if that's what they describe, and it's like, well, that's exactly the characteristics that this stage has. But if it's just sort of popped up from nowhere or it's just, uh, um, it doesn't seem to have been following <laughs> 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, like well, you can't say well you've got it wrong, or that's uh, uh, that's uh, uh, you shouldn't be doing it that way, or you've made a you've made a bad mistake. You've got to go back to <laughs> got to go back to stage four and do all the you know connect up all the dots before you can uh, validly reach stage nine. Uh, he, um, as I was saying uh, day or two ago, he worked very much from the practical realities of what he experienced in himself and the people around him rather than by what it said in the book or what the, the, the system might um, describe and say, well, you know, if, they're, if they're saying what they're experiencing is stage nine, if, they've, if they haven't experienced you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, well, okay, <laughs> so be it. That's the, that's the way it is taking shape for this person. So he didn't uh, pick up a lot on those, uh, those um, qualities and, and would be... Um, Say encouraging people to to be practicing with diligently and uh, and letting those uh, wholesome qualities be cultivated, be supported. But you know, the um, it's like you don't have to have a name for it. You, you know, you can be like you can be cooking some food. You don't have to have a name for the dish. You're still cooking the food. You can still eat it. It still nourishes you, whether it's got a name or not. <laughs> it's, like it's still it's still the the same thing. So that he would um, uh, say. Uh, guide things in that particular way. And I remember one time uh, with Lumpur Sumato, um, he was leading a 10-day retreat in, in California, and uh, he never mentioned stream entry once in the whole 10 days, but every Dhamma talk was about letting go of self-view, uh, letting go of doubt, and letting go of attachment to conventions. Every, every talk was... <laughs> On those, uh, the, the three, the first three fetters, the first three obstacles to enlightenment, and he never mentioned stream entry or any kind of quality of uh, of realization or attainment. But every talk was about those those first three fetters and how how they can be let go of. And it was like, <laughs> it was so it was quite in intriguing that th this is what you need. This is what needs to be done. This is what you need to do. You do, you know, do this, and then the good results will happen. You don't have to call it anything or make anything of it. But this is. And this is the work that needs to happen. So, any uh, any thoughts, questions? Yes, Jenny. Um, sort of, you mentioned jhanas and and um, uh, joy and rapture are to be experienced, can be experienced, as I understand it, in, in jhanas. Did uh, although Ajahn Chah um, didn't s sort of go into the into great detail about jhanas. Did he did he give teachings on a joyful practice and um, uh, um, rapture, or, or was that not um, part of his his teaching? Because he what? seemed to be quite sorry. Mm. He seemed to be quite a a, a joyful person. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if where that ca actually came into his teachings. Well, I'd say it's it's incorporated in this flow of instruction that he's giving here, and that he tends to to speak more about peacefulness um, than it's sort of encouraging 
uh, sort of rapture or happiness because he and again it can come across as a bit sour but he knew that people want happiness <laughs> uh, but rather than making a big thing of that or, or inflating it he would tend to emphasize peace and and the quality of, of ease or freedom rather than that happiness because it can easily drift into kind of getting excited or carried away and that those so, but I think what he's describing here are the you know, the first four jhanas and that you know, to the state where the what he's described like the the body disappearing altogether or feeling that the you know, sort of floating in space these are aspects of of the, the say the depth of concentration equivalent to fourth jhana uh, in that in that kind of region but he's um, uh, he seemingly he downplayed that sense of, of joy or you know rapture or or, or, or the achievement of happiness, because people <laughs> tend to easily grasp that and identify that, and and more often he would talk about the dangers of grasping happiness and that uh, that that sense of, of coolness in relationship to pleasant and unpleasant experiences, so that those uh, qualities of contentment and ease and and, and freedom and profound happiness uh, can be there. But the mind isn't getting sort of caught up or attached or, or identified with uh, with those. That makes sense. Any other questions, thoughts? Yes, Phil. Yeah, um, another question. Um, do, do, does meditation have any effect on developing the faculty of memory? Um, I mean, in my, my own experience, my memory's kind of declined over the years that I've been practicing. <laughs> um, is, is it known to have any, any beneficial effect? Uh, well, m the word for mindfulness, sati, it literally means memory. In the, and in the, the Sanskrit, smriti, is, it, it means memory more than it means mindfulness. So, and then when the Buddha's talking about the cultivation of mindfulness, then uh, and also the, um, uh, the you know just talking about the, its attributes. Then one of the things that is said quite frequently is that by cultivating mindfulness, they can remember things that were said and done even long ago and quite accurately. So it's more mindfulness that is the support for memory rather than concentration. I mean, I wouldn't say it's again. It's not rigidly the case, but. Um, uh, I wouldn't uh, presume to guess exactly why your memory seems to be getting worse. <laughs> but that's how it's talked about in the, in the scriptures, and I would say, if just on a practical level, the less cluttered uh, the mind is, and, and the, the more focused on the present and attuned to the present reality, the less it's hanging on to uh, happiness and unhappiness, success and failure, and uh, and identifying with things, and the the more then your memory can function in a, in a uh, a fluid way. But yeah, people vary. But so generally, it's, it's mindfulness that is the uh, the cause for uh, increased memory. As you continue to practice, you should understand there's nothing to worry about. Establish this feeling of being relaxed and unworried securely in the mind. 
Once the mind is concentrated and one-pointed, nothing will be able to penetrate or disturb it, and you'll be able to sit like this for as long as you wish. You'll be able to sustain concentration without any feelings of pain or discomfort. Having developed samadhi to this level, you'll be able to enter or leave it at will. When you do leave, it's at your ease and convenience, rather than because you're feeling lazy or tired. This is samadhi, relaxed and comfortable. You enter and leave it without any hindrance. If you genuinely have samadhi like this, sitting to meditate for just 30 minutes or an hour will enable you to remain cool and peaceful for many days. Receiving the results of samadhi like this has a purifying effect on the mind. Whatever you experience will become an object of contemplation. This is where the practice really begins. It's the fruit that comes as samadhi matures. Also, that um, there's a uh, a passage or uh, places where the Buddha praises uh, Venerable Sariputta as the most uh, adept at uh, meditation, and he's saying just like if you are a, a wealthy merchant and you've got lots of different cupboards and trunks full of clothes, and you can sort of choose what you want to wear in the morning, choose what you want to wear in the afternoon, choose what you want to wear in the evening, you kind of pick out the the clothes that you like from your from your trunks or your cupboards, and you just dress as you choose. He said, "You know, Sariputta, he can choose what what uh, state of mind to absorb into. He can just decide where he wants to put his mind, what kind of state he wants to absorb into, and just like choosing a, a set of clothes, he can uh, he uh, at will can uh, pick up and enter and depart from particular states of concentration." It's also an interesting thing that even though uh, Venerable Sariputta was extremely adept at meditation, he had no psychic powers at all. That's one of the interesting things, is that his friend, and the second most, um, the second disciple of the Buddha, Mahamogalana, had lots and lots of psychic powers, um, uh, but uh, uh, his, uh, but Sariputta had none whatsoever. And so that it, it, just because you have a lot of skill in concentration doesn't necessarily mean that those kind of uh, abilities uh, arise. Also, uh, Lumpur Chah himself, that uh, he was well known for his ability just to be uh, uh, available and, and teaching people and seeming to be you know, up half the night answering questions and, uh, and uh, giving people teachings. And then he could sort of, he'd sort of look, look at the clock and see it was like two, you know, half past two in the morning or the, the morning bell going at three o'clock and say, okay, time to take a break. And he, <laughs> he'd, uh, he'd go off and... Uh, and uh, rest for a bit, and then be there for the arms round at five o'clock in the morning, and, uh, and so that was. Uh, and people were often uh, amazed at how little sleep he needed. But he would often say, "Well, if you just dip into samadhi for a short period of time, then it's just like having a whole night's sleep. You don't have to to um, have hours and hours of sleep. You can you can just go into samadhi for a short period of time, fifteen, twenty minutes, half an hour, and and then the mind is is fully refreshed, which is." Very convenient um, for being able to be available for people uh, endlessly, but uh, that lack of uh, of rest for the body probably had its. Um, even though, not to 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 dismiss the the value of samadhi, but probably not giving his body a lot of rest over thirty or forty years probably had a, a an impact on his his health and um, that he was uh, continually available for people so all day every day. Uh, and that um, that sort of getting by with a very short amount of sleep that did seem to be um, yeah, he could be sort of refreshed by that, but uh, 
the, the system generally was uh, seemingly uh, worn down uh, or compromised by that uh, lack of, uh, of rest and uh, ability to really recuperate. So he was, he was younger than I am now when he keeled over and had his, uh, uh, his stroke, and, uh, which is a sobering thought for myself. He was, uh, it was about 1981, 82, he was 63, 64 years old when he had his um, uh, stroke and was brain damaged so that uh, he was no longer able to teach after about the age of 64. Samadhi performs the function of calming the mind. Samadhi has one function, sila has its function, and wisdom performs another function. These aspects you are developing in your practice are linked, forming a cycle. Once the mind is calm, it will become progressively more restrained and composed due to the presence of wisdom and the power of samadhi. As this occurs, it will give rise to an energy that acts to purify conduct. Greater purity of conduct then facilitates the development of stronger and more refined samadhi, and this in turn supports the maturing of wisdom. They assist each other in this way. Each aspect of the practice acts as a supporting factor for the other two, and in the end these terms become synonymous. As these three factors continue to mature together, they form one complete circle, giving rise to magga, the path. Magga is the synthesis of these three functions of practice working smoothly and consistently together. Preserve this energy. It's the energy that will give rise to vipassana or special insight. Having reached this stage where wisdom is functioning in the mind, independent of whether the mind is tranquil or not, wisdom will provide a consistent energy in your practice. You see that whenever the mind isn't tranquil, you shouldn't have any attachment to that. Even when it is tranquil, you shouldn't have any attachment. Having let go of the burden of such concerns, the heart will feel much lighter. Whether you experience pleasant or unpleasant phenomena, you will remain at ease. The mind remains peaceful in this way. There are some very important uh, principles there, the sense of how Sila, Samadhi and Panya work together. They have different names or sort of different attributes, but they, they really work together as a, uh, as a unit. And again, that was a theme that was, um, that was very common in Lumpur Chah's teaching because people tended to think of, oh, you know, the sila is over here, this is how you, this is, these are the precepts that you keep, and then the meditation is over there. The meditation is really separate from, from sila. And then also, not only that, but you found, uh, again, in the, in the 50s and 60s, uh, 70, uh, uh, 70s, people tended to pick up different styles of meditation practice and say, oh, this is a, this is a, a samadhi monastery, or this is a, a, a vipassana monastery. We do we do satipatthana here. We do we do the foundations of mindfulness. We don't do uh, we don't do concentration, or that. Uh, and the, ever since the time of the Buddha, you'd have these different camps, like the the jhana wallas and the the sam, uh, and the uh, vipassana wallas, the kind of different groups, and uh, that uh, so that's that's carried on over the centuries, millennia, and so that uh, that that kind of divisiveness of like, this is a samadhi monastery, or this is a vipassana monastery, or others, those samadhi people, they don't have any real wisdom, or those vipassana people, they don't have any concentration, they're kind of fake meditators. And so Lumpur Cha uh, looked at that and thought, this is really foolish. (laughs) And so in many of his teachings, 
he would point out it's all the same mind you can't really divide these things up from each other you know like water you have it's the, the 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 wetness of water and the and the taste of of water and the temperature of water you can't sort of take the temperature out and just have the the, the wetness and the uh, and the flavor or you can't just take the flavor out and have the wetness and the temperature like they're all different aspects of the same element so these are all different a- attributes of the mind so this is Lumpur touching upon that same aspect that you know sila samadhi and panya they're not they're not separate from each other and particularly with regards to the precepts uh, and the Vinaya training, because um, uh, he, he was very, very, uh, set a very, very strict standard and that we were expected to learn all the uh, many and various minor rules and follow things very scrupulously. But he uh, very frequently pointed out that the precise development of Vinaya and the precepts was a continual support for mindfulness and, and concentration so that they're not separate from each other, but... The uh, the vinaya is not just sort of the the what you do in terms of behavior over there, and your meditation is or sitting still with your eyes closed or be on the walking path over there, but rather the um, uh, the practice of the precepts was very much seen as part of the meditation and our, our ongoing quality of of mindfulness, and then also being able to be attentive to motivation if you're feeling lazy or you're feeling excited or irritated or anxious. And then that uh, not wanting to bother with a particular rule, wanting to break a particular rule, or, or um, be, uh, say, anxious about a particular rule, then that would be, uh, say, seen as part of the ongoing process of contemplation to see what the mind is doing with its moment-by-moment experience uh, of, the, of the world. Then this last part here, um, where he talks about... Um, you should see that whenever the mind isn't tranquil, you shouldn't have any attachment to that. Uh, when the mind is tranquil, you shouldn't have any attachment. Um, and uh, again, this is a very uh, sort of common theme. Rather than worshipping tranquility and, the, and anything, if the mind is not tranquil and thinking, oh, that, that's bad or that's wrong or I shouldn't be this way, uh, he focused very much on, on attitude. And so, like I was talking about the the weather, you know, if the weather is stormy and windy and there's lots of, of rain, that's that's the experience of the weather. It's agitated, but you can uh, receive and be in the midst of that that kind of turbulence and activity, agitation of the weather, and be quite at peace with it. So mind states are just the same. You can uh, have something that's very exciting or very challenging or very frightening. And you can know oh, this is a feeling of fear, or this is a feeling of excitement, or, or you know, irritation, or discomfort, and not suppressing it, not pushing it away, but the mind not not making anything out of that. So um, it points very much to that you know, the quality of peace coming from the attitude rather than from the objects of uh, of perception. That it uh, that peace is not whether there's just still weather and no wind or you you know rain and everything is quiet but rather peace is in the attitude it's on the more on the subject side than on the object side any thoughts questions clarifications very nice water Yes. About the similar theme of Sila, Samadhi, and Panya, just taking the 
first precept of um, thinking in terms of harmlessness and cultivating that and then creating a mind space of harmlessness and then that can you know, allow things to come and you won't be um, fighting and you'll be receiving because you've been cultivating harmlessness and then kind of realizing oh, the enlightened being is completely harmless uh, and to go back to realize, oh, that was just from the first precept. <laughs> and like, so I suppose that Ajahn Chah says, is the whole mm-hmm. comes together mm-hmm. to see the Samadhi <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that also, um, like the, uh, um, well, one of the precepts really, particularly, particularly the, the fourth precept on honesty, that as a, a um, a support for meditation. That's you know, that's great because it's a that deliberately refusing to lie to yourself, <laughs> to, to be honest about what you're experiencing or what the the, the feelings of like or dislike or or um, you know, patience or impatience or whatever the mood might be. That sense of openness and and uh, acknowledging what's present as it is. And if you're feeling if there's a feeling of uh, of selfishness or, or anger or laziness, it's like here it is. It's this rather than than pushing it away or pretending it's not there or making excuses. So just uh, again, that principle of honesty is extraordinarily helpful, and that uh, to be uh, like yeah, <laughs> whether I like it or not, here it is. This is this is what's experienced. So that um, yeah, they they all work together, and I think you know Lumpur describes it very very skillfully here. Also, um, in the uh, sort of classical terms, they often talk about um, that, uh, and you, know, you can find it spoken of this way in the suttas, how uh, sila supports concentration and concentration then supports wisdom, and that's of a frequent pattern. But uh, one of the most um, sort of influential Dhamma talks, and I think it was the very first thing of uh, Ajahn Mahabhur's translated into English, was called Wisdom Develops Samadhi, that was uh, uh, translated and published, I think, about 1962 or 63, you know, way back. And where he talks, which is not the usual way, it's usually that samadhi supports wisdom, but he, uh, in that uh, in that Dhamma talk, if I remember correctly, you know, he points out how that uh, if you're trying to develop concentration um, and uh, you're just using just the the capacity to focus and, and willpower and energy um, that that's one way of doing it but if you apply wisdom and you use that reflective faculty and you uh, act uh, and there's an active using of that then to see oh well the mind doesn't want to concentrate because it's being the attention's being caught by that particular sound why why is that sound significant uh, why why is the mind making something out of that it, the, the, it doesn't have to to build a story around that sound. It's just a noise, uh, and then come back to the present. So that you're actively, uh, and he so he he points out how the active use of reflection and investigation can be a direct support for samadhi. And so that's a, which is, um, uh, you know, again coming from the practicalities of working with the mind rather than oh, but in the suttas it always you know, sila supports samadhi, samadhi supports wisdom. They're saying, hey, look, you know, it works this way too. Uh, Thomas Merton, the, the um, Trappist monk, uh, ref- I think he referred to that 
that talk of um of Ajahn, uh, he came across a copy of it uh, in the early 60s and he said it, he called it a spiritual masterpiece but, uh, he was very admiring of that yes Evan well again it's ultimately it becomes words but I do in my mind there's a difference between and in my experience there's a difference between concentration even a sort of high quote unquote level of concentration and samadhi um, and I think one way of sort of pointing that up is ikagata, one-pointedness, and then we have Lumpur Sumedho offering us the idea that everything belongs. So it's quite a different mind state, <laughs> quite a different experience. Um, and what you're saying, yes. what Ajahn Buddha Dasa says supports that, you know, absolutely. That's what he's pointing to. Is Ajahn Mahabua? Oh, oh, I'm so, oh, it was Mahabua. Oh, oh I, somehow I miss her. Ajahn Mahabua, yeah. Oh. Yeah, the uh, well, that the Lumpur's Sumato's um, very helpful designation of the point which excludes uh, the ekagata, the sort of the mind focusing on a single, a single point, uh, uh, to, and then the point which includes like the the point. It's one pointed, but the point includes everything. Okay. With wisdom rather than forcefulness. Yeah, well, also samadhi, lit, lit, the, the, the dhi of samadhi is the same as, as tamma or dhara, it's like it's to hold or support. So samadhi literally means something like correct holding or balanced holding. And uh, so the word collectedness um, is a, uh, a good translation for, for samadhi. It's tough to put those things hmm? in words. It's, it's tough to put those things in words, but words are what we have, so we do our best. <laughs> also, the the speaking of memory, recollection, recollection, to uh, to to sort of rec- recollect recollect yourself, <laughs> and also the way we use the word scattered, uh, like the mind is is scattered or uh, distracted, and the. The the etymology of the word distracted literally means being pulled apart, like tractor attraction. The distracted is like pulled apart, and so then collected is uh, things integrated and held together, and distracted is things pulled apart. So to continue, it's also important to, to recognize that when you end a session of formal meditation. If wisdom is not functioning, you'll give up the practice altogether without any further contemplation, development of awareness, or consideration of the work that still has to be done. When you withdraw from samadhi, you should know clearly that you have withdrawn. Then, continue to conduct yourself in a normal manner, maintaining mindfulness at all times. It isn't that you only practice meditation in the sitting posture. Samadhi means a mind that is firm and unwavering. As you go about your activities, make the mind firm and steady, and maintain this steadiness as your state of mind at all times, with continuous mindfulness and self-recollection. As you experience phenomena that cause like and dislike, consistently be aware of the fact that such mental states are impermanent and uncertain. In this way, the mind remains calm and in a state of normalcy. There are two kinds of peacefulness. One is the peace that comes through samadhi. 
The other is the peace that comes through wisdom. The mind that is peaceful through samadhi is still deluded. Such peace is dependent on the mind being separated from phenomena. When it's not experiencing any contact or activity, there's calm. Consequently, you get attached to the happiness that comes with that calm state. But as soon as there is impingement through the senses, the mind gives in right away. It gets, uh, it gets to be afraid of phenomena. It'll be afraid of happiness and suffering, of praise and criticism, afraid of forms, sounds, smells and tastes. People who are peaceful through samadhi alone are afraid of everything and don't want to get involved with anybody or anything because they're afraid their state of mind will be disturbed. People practicing in this way just want to stay in isolation to experience the bliss of samadhi without having to leave it. They want to hide themselves away in a quiet place. This kind of samadhi can involve a lot of suffering. People find it difficult to come out of it and be with others. They don't want to see or hear anything. They don't want to experience anything at all. They have to live in some specially preserved, very quiet place where no one will come and disturb them with conversation. So again, following up that, that same kind of, uh, of theme, so that uh, that peacefulness of uh, the object world, if the, if it's the mind is focused on a, a single object, this is like samadhi as a, you know, in a way, one-pointedness, um, then that as long as the object is, is, is steady and the mind can focus on that, then there's peacefulness in that realm, like the weather being calm and, and quiet and, and um, pleasant. But the, uh, the other piece uh, is the piece that comes through wisdom, which is through the, the attitude. And then he's talking about how when you are creating a sense of dependency on, uh, on, peace, uh, uh, on a piece which is dependent on uh, sensory experience and on concentration, on that one-pointedness, then it's very fragile. And, um, then, uh, and it's easy for people to get, uh, in meditation, to get very uh, upset by the, 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 the noise of somebody breathing next to them or the, the, the sounds outside the, the, the room and uh, things that come to disturb and upset. And, and um, that uh, is something that is, is uh, very commonly experienced in some particular approaches to meditation. Also, I'm reminded of that uh, story of when uh, Lumpo Cha was given the, the, the land, uh, Tamsung Pet, which is a, a little freestanding hill in the Amnachiran province, just north of, um, uh, of Ubon, uh, where the main monastery was. And that uh, the, the donor of this land said, if you can find a way to build a road up to the top of the hill, I'll build a sala, and you can uh, have a monastery on the hilltop. And uh, other people who'd been there before thought that you, it's too rugged, it's, uh, it's too rocky, and you can't, you can't possibly get a road up there. Lumpo Chao spent a week camped out on the hill and found a way that you could get a road up there. And so he then brought a, a huge crowd of the monks and novices from Wapapong to, to make the road. And the young Ajahn Sumato was part of the road-building team. And this is a story he would tell very often. And um, So there was a lot of physical work that was going on, breaking rocks and forming this, this road by hand um, up the hillside and you know, looping around to, to come to the top of the hill. So after a few days of breaking rocks in the sun and carrying them around and, and making this road, then uh, the young Ajahn Sumedho went to Lumpur Chao and said, you know, my, I'm really you know, agitated, my mind is very busy, all this physical work and, and the kind of conversations, chit-chat that's going on. It's, uh, my practice is really uh, compromised by this, so it would be much better if I could just 
do a formal meditation. And Dumbachara, to his surprise, said, oh, fine, Sumedho, fine, absolutely, no problem, but I better tell the Sangha that this is what's happening, because uh, otherwise people will be critical of you. So he kind of <laughs> yeah, convened this little meeting and told everyone, sort of uh, hammed it up a bit, saying, now none of you are to criticize Tan Sumedho, he's a serious meditator, he's much more, uh, much more focused on his practice than any of you guys, so don't criticize him, I've given him permission to meditate, and and so then uh, he went off to, to uh, practice by himself in this little um, grass hut. But then hearing the sounds of all the road making going on and just watching his mind states like, what are you doing, Samedo? You kind of, yeah. Why are you so special? Why are you so different? And after two or three days, he couldn't stand it any longer. Went out to join the, uh, the road crew. That's one of the um, uh, particular sort of notable instances of this um, hiding, hiding away from all influence. Uh, also, I, rem- I remember um, uh, years ago uh, when having a conversation with a different Buddhist group here in the in the UK, and they were uh, the question came up like, well, how do you how do you en- how do you end things when when a retreat uh, finishes? And I said, well, you know, we just we chant some paritas, people take the five precepts and the three refuges and the five precepts, and then they go home. And I said, well, you just let them get in their cars and drive off straight away. And I said, well. Yeah, what, what do you do? And they say, and they say, well, well, we find it's very dangerous if people finish the retreat and then immediately get in their car and drive. And said, dangerous? What do you do? <laughs> what? And they say, oh yeah, if people have been in a, 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 in in retreat for that time, then they they often they, they are they're not able to drive safely, or they 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 are um, they they kind of can't handle the car skillfully. And and it was a really interesting conversation. Like, wow, that's a whole different focus on, on, on ways of practicing. But they, they had a, a particular emphasis on concentration and so sort of keeping everything away and having a sort of hermetically sealed retreat environment. And so the idea of getting into a car and turning it on <laughs> and driving, like, wouldn't it? You, literally, they need like, three or four hours to, to decompress or recompress <laughs> to... Uh, to get into the mode where they could safely drive a car. So it was, that was quite an eye-opener for me that, that uh, I got so used to our particular way of, of practicing and the sense of adaptability um, uh, in, the, in the practice and uh, that it was a, um, uh, a, a very different uh, approach. And um, the, uh, n- not to put that down, but it's just uh, that sense of trying to sustain an environment where, where nothing impinges and anything that does impinge is seen as a, an intrusion or a problem or something that's to be kept away. But uh, uh, Lumpur Chah, obviously, he encouraged a lot of meditation and you know, certainly supporting formal practice. And We live in forests and the countryside in, to be, in order to be in quiet places. But he also he could see, again, the, the, the dangers of focusing on... on uh, I, you know, I, this is disturbing my practice. I don't want this. This is getting in my way. And f- uh, from his own experience and um, seeing what his mind had done with, with similar things. And there's a, a story he often told about when he was on uh, on Tudong as a young monk and uh, living in the the <coughs> in a, a forest close to a village, and I could hear all the sounds of a of a, uh, a festival going on, the the, the uh, Morlam singing in the, and the the kind of music being played in the village, and sitting there in the forest thinking, don't they realize there's a monk up here meditating? They're in, they're interrupting my practice. They're making all kinds of demerit, 
all the sorts of bad karma uh, disturbing this this monk and then and then he uh, he's had this this powerful insight he he realized you know the, the, it's not the sound annoying me it's me annoying the sound it's like the sound is just the sound they're not it, it's not out to to spite me or make a problem but it's just the air vibrating that's just a sound coming through the through the air and if there's a problem it's only coming from one place the problematicness is only <laughs> coming from from one place this mind and that was a uh, quite a turning point for him he realized how he could get very indignant or upset or like that's inter- interrupting my practice but the he saw that the negativity or the the obstructiveness of of sound in that respect was just his mind's attitude towards it if he changed the attitude and decided not to annoy the sound then it was just what it was it was just a uh, ear consciousness doing its thing and not a not a problem or an, or an obstruction this kind of peacefulness alone can't do the job if you reach the necessary level of calm then withdraw and use that calm as a basis for contemplation contemplate the peace of concentration itself and use it to connect the mind with and reflect upon the different phenomena it experiences use the calm of samadhi to contemplate sights sounds smells tastes tactile sensations and thoughts in light of the three characteristics of impermanence suffering and lack of self when you've contemplated sufficiently it's all right to re-establish samadhi you can re-enter it through sitting meditation and then with calm re-established continue with the contemplation use the state of calm to train and purify the mind as well as to challenge it as you gain knowledge use it to combat the mental afflictions if you simply enter samadhi and stay there you don't gain any insight you're only making the mind calm that's all however if you use the calm mind to reflect beginning with your external experience this calm will gradually penetrate deeper and deeper inward until the mind experiences the most profound peace of all the peace that comes from wisdom is distinctive because when the mind withdraws from tranquility the presence of wisdom makes it unafraid of sights sounds smells taste physical sensations and thoughts it means that as soon as there is sense contact the mind is immediately aware of what's happening when there's contact you lay it aside because your mindfulness is sharp enough to let go right away when you're training the mind like this it becomes considerably more refined than when you develop samadhi alone the mind becomes very powerful and no longer tries to avoid anything with such energy you become fearless in the past you were scared to experience anything but now you know phenomena as they are and are no longer afraid you know your own strength of mind and are unafraid when you see a form you contemplate it when you hear a sound you contemplate it you become proficient at contemplating mental objects you're established in the practice with a new boldness that will prevail no matter what the conditions whether it be sights or sounds or whatever you recognize them and let go of them as soon as they occur whatever it is you can let go of it you see happiness clearly and let go you see suffering clearly and let go wherever you see them you let go of them right there keep letting them go casting them aside as they arise 
No phenomena will be able to maintain a hold over your mind. You leave them behind and remain secure in your place of abiding. All phenomena lose their value and are no longer able to sway you. This is the power of vipassana. When such a quality of awareness arises within your mind, the practice can be called vipassana, clear knowing in accordance with the truth. This is peace at the highest level. So when uh, also in a very uh, powerful and helpful teaching and also very um, much so underscoring that the way that contemplation and concentration mindfulness all, all work together and uh, again there are a, a supportive uh, process uh, mutually um, supportive and uh, the empowering uh, when he says let go when there's contact you lay it aside because your mindfulness is sharp, sharp enough to let go right away so letting go isn't dismissing or casting aside it is not a, a dissociation with the, the sense world or thoughts or, or activity uh, that uh, it's, uh, it's in a way that letting go is enabling the heart to be responsive rather than reactive. So this, uh, the letting go isn't a just sort of spacing out or, or disconnection, but it's a, 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 a no longer grasping, but rather an attunement to the time, the place, the situation, and what's useful to, to do or to say or to, to how to relate to a, a situation um, based on, on that quality of attunement. So it's a responsivity rather than any kind of dissociation, uh, so that uh, it's a, an important uh, distinction uh, distinction to make. And then, as he says, you're established in the practice with a new boldness that will prevail no matter what the conditions. So that quality uh, of boldness or, or a lack of uh, anxiety was, again, very much a characteristic of Lumpur Cha. He was very, uh, kind of, he was completely at ease. <laughs> In, in every situation, he never seemed to be uh, upset or, or or agitated by by anything, and that uh, is unafraid to to deal with any particular situation, whether it was physically challenging, an illness, or somebody um, threatening him physically or whatever. He was uh, uh, very very much uh, uh, at uh, at ease. So as a, a fearlessness not based on, on, on ego or, or a, a sense of self, but just that which a, rec a recognition of that which is real is not, is not harmable, is not, uh, is not endangerable by anything that is seen, heard, smelled, tasted, or touched, or, or thought. There's a profound quality of security, stability, and uh, unshakable, uh, unshakableness. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. I have a question, Ajahn, about wise um, contemplation. Um, this instruction by uh, Ajahn Chah to um, when having a certain level of concentration to drop in these reflection, um, these reflection points, sort of how much, you know, or maybe some more, some more detail on that, if you would have, like, is it, is it a question, something that's not sort of leading to sort of a lot of thought, or mm -hmm. much of, right, because um, I think I'm cautious around having too much, too much thinking going on, you know, too much. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, 
and uh, you're by no means the first person to ask it. So the when we talk about uh, say Dhamma Vichaya, uh, investigation, um, or Yoni Manasikara, wise reflection, then the, the quality that those have, if they're involving conceptual thought, then the mind is thinking in whole sentences. So when it's just proliferation, I mean, maybe it starts off with a wise reflection and then <laughs> the, uh, the, the dog gets out into the garden and it's, you know, away into the undergrowth uh, in, uh, rapidly. But um, uh, if, the, if it is genuinely wise reflection, then there's a, a measured quality. So the mind is, think, is using thought, but in whole sentences, so that, say that uh, something happens, you have a, a, a sound that you hear or a, a feeling in the body, and that uh, then you know, the, the, the mind can reflect, oh, that there's a, a, an uncomfortable feeling in my left leg that I haven't felt before, and uh, there's this wave of, of anxiety saying, oh no, not my left one as well. That's just arisen. That's a feeling. Ten minutes ago, that wasn't a problem. Now, because of that feeling, the mind is saying this is a problem. Is it really a problem? So that there's a there's a spaciousness, there's like a gap, a sort of gap between the the thoughts. That you're thinking in whole short sentences. So it's not just one thing, kind of just chasing after another in a fragmented way. But there's a measured quality of spaciousness, and the mind is is looking at experiences of, uh, of sensation or emotion or perception um, in, in a, uh, uh, say, uh, an orderly way. And then, uh, and then if, whether it's a statement like, I didn't want this, <laughs> this is just what I didn't want. And just to naming what's there, or it can be a question like, uh, uh, so, uh, this is uh, uh, this is uh, unexpected. What's a good way to handle this? Again, then just asking a question, and then seeing whether something arises or nothing arises, rather than that's immediately chasing after it. So, if you if there's sufficient mindfulness, then if the papancha mill gets going and the, the, it sort of jumps onto a, a thought thing. oh yeah well I did, actually I did have an injury in my left leg that was like what two or three years ago and oh yeah blah, 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 and off it goes so, to notice okay wait 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 that's uh, the mind's got lost in thought so go back you can't, you know, notice that let go and then come back to well actually what's here in this moment what's, what's the present experience right now so that that uh, losing the perspective and the the wise reflection just blurring into papancha to, to notice that and then to take actions okay that's this is not helpful let go come back what's what's actually present here and now so that quality of um, spaciousness and the the use of of wise reflection um, and particularly if you if there's a question they say, what looks like a good way forward from here to really consciously leave a space and then to see what arises from that? And, and, and if nothing arises, then let's recognize uh, nothing is apparent as <laughs> a good way forward, okay? And just to leave, leave it empty, just to, to uh, okay, it's not clear what's, what's, uh, 
what's well, a good way forward okay just let that be mysterious just uh, leave it there so that so easeful spacious quality is always an aspect of genuine wise reflection i would say that's a that's a sort of a the the sort of characteristic the lakana of that it's it's got a measured spacious um integrated quality where papancha is is you never finish a sentence it's always just sort of one thing chasing after another after another and uh, there's no uh, there, there isn't that uh, uh easeful quality there's no gaps really in in the the flow it's just one one thing knocking onto another like a kind of cascade that makes sense and so a part of it then with with wise reflection there's a um, a physical aspect to it uh, as well because one of the things that feeds papancha is is physical tension like if there's if the body has got uh, a lot of tightness in it in your in your face or your shoulders or your stomach or you know, your hands or whatever then that that uh, physical tension feeds mental agitation and busyness. So to support wise reflection, uh, yonisa manasikara, then that bring, putting attention on physical relaxation as well is very, very helpful. So the, the, the body is supporting that measured uh, spacious quality as well. So it's not just in the mental realm, but if the body is really settled and at ease, then it, it uh, is a direct, um, say, uh, uh, say, um, it directly supports and, and strengthens that uh, spacious quality of, of wise reflection. Okay, so seven o'clock has come around, so I'll leave it there for today.